Book Three, Part Six of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Cheng. Histories, Volume One, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book Three, Part Six, Paragraphs One O Two to One Two Five. Other Indians dwell near the town of Caspatyrus and the Pactaic country, north of the rest of India. These live like the Bactrians. They are of all Indians the most warlike, and it is they who are sent for the gold. For in these parts all is desolate because of the sand. In this sandy desert are ants, not as big as dogs, but bigger than foxes. The Persian king has some of these, which have been caught there. These ants live underground, digging out the sand in the same way as the ants in Greece, to which they are very similar in shape, and the sand which they carry from the holes is full of gold. It is for this sand that the Indians set forth into the desert. They harness three camels apiece, males on either side sharing the drawing, and a female in the middle. The man himself rides on the female, that when harnessed has been taken away from as young an offspring as may be. Their camels are swift as horses, and much better able to bear burdens besides. I do not describe the camel's appearance to Greeks, for they know it, but I shall tell them something that they do not know concerning it. The hind legs of the camel have four thigh bones and four knee joints. Its genitals are turned towards the tail between the hind legs. Thus, and with teams so harnessed, the Indians ride after the gold, being careful to be engaged in taking it when the heat is greatest, for the ants are then out of sight underground. Now in these parts the sun is hottest in the morning, not at midday as elsewhere, but from sunrise to the hour of market closing. Through these hours it is much hotter than in Hellas at noon, so that men are said to sprinkle themselves with water at this time. At midday the sun's heat is nearly the same in India as elsewhere. As it goes to afternoon, the sun of India has the power of the morning sun in other lands. As day declines, it becomes ever cooler, until at sunset it is exceedingly cold. So when the Indians come to the place with their sacks, they fill these with the sand and drive back as fast as possible. For the ants at once sent them out, the Persians say, and give chase. They say nothing is equal to them for speed, so that unless the Indians have a head start while the ants were gathering, not one of them would get away. They cut loose the male trace camels, which are slower than the females, as they begin to lag, one at a time. The mares never tire, for they remember the young that they have left. Such is the tale. Most of the gold, say the Persians, is got in this way by the Indians. They dig some from mines in their country, too, but it is less abundant. The most outlying nations of the world have somehow drawn the finest things as their lot, exactly as Greece has drawn the possession of far the best seasons. As I have lately said, India lies at the world's most distant eastern limit, and in India all living creatures, four-footed and flying, are much bigger than those of other lands, except the horses, which are smaller than the Median horses called Nisean. Moreover, the gold there, whether dug from the earth or brought down by rivers, or got, as I have described, is very abundant. There, too, wool more beautiful and excellent than the wool of sheep grows on wild trees. These trees supply the Indians with clothing. 
Again, Arabia is the most distant to the south of all inhabited countries, and this is the only country which produces frankincense and myrrh, and cassia and cinnamon, and gum mastic. All these except myrrh are difficult for the Arabians to get. They gather frankincense by burning that storax which Venetians carry to Hellas. They burn this and so get the frankincense. For the spice-bearing trees are guarded by small winged snakes of varied colour, many around each tree. These are the snakes that attack Egypt. Nothing except the spoke of storax will drive them away from the trees. The Arabians also say that the whole country would be full of these snakes if the same thing did not occur among them that I believe occurs among vipers. Somehow the forethought of God, just as is reasonable, being wise, has made all creatures prolific that are timid and edible, so that they do not become extinct through being eaten, whereas few young are born to hardy and vexatious creatures. On the one hand, because the hare is hunted by every beast and bird and man, therefore it is quite prolific. Alone of all creatures it conceives during pregnancy. Some of the unborn young are hairy, some still naked, some are still forming in the womb while others are just conceived. On the one hand there is this sort of thing, but on the other hand the lioness that is so powerful and so bold once in her life bears one cub, for in the act of bearing she casts her uterus out with her cub. The explanation of this is that when the cub first begins to stir in the mother, its claws, much sharper than those of any other creature, tear the uterus, and the more it grows, the more it scratches and tears, so that when the hour of birth is near, seldom is any of the uterus left intact. So, too, if the vipers and the winged serpents of Arabia were born in the natural manner of serpents, life would be impossible for men. But as it is when they copulate, while the male is in the act of procreation, and as soon as he has ejaculated his seed, the female seizes him by the neck and does not let go until she has bitten through. The male dies in the way described, but the female suffers in return for the male the following punishment. Avenging their father, the young, while they are still within the womb, gnaw at their mother, and eating through her bowels, thus make their way out. Other snakes that do no harm to men lay eggs and hatch out a vast number of young. The Arabian winged serpents do indeed seem to be numerous, but that is because, although they are vipers in every land, these are all in Arabia and are found nowhere else. The Arabians get frankincense in the foregoing way, and cassia in the following way. When they go after it, they bind ox-hides and other skins all over their bodies and faces, except for the eyes. Cassia grows in a shallow lake. Around this and in it lived winged creatures, very like bats, that squeak similarly and make a fierce resistance. These have to be kept away from the eyes in order to take the cassia. As for cinnamon, they gather it in an even stranger way. Where it comes from and what land produces it, they cannot say, except that it is reported, reasonably enough, to grow in the places where Dionysus was reared. There are great birds, it is said, that take these dry sticks, which we have learned from the Phoenicians to call cinnamon, and carry them off to nests, stuck with mud to precipitous cliffs, where man has no means of approach. The Arabian solution to this is to cut dead oxen and asses and other beasts of burden into the largest possible pieces, then to set these near the eyries and withdraw far off. 
The birds then fly down, it is said, and carry the pieces of the beasts up to their nests, while these, not being able to bear the weight, break and fall down the mountainside, and then the Arabians come and gather them up. Thus is cinnamon said to be gathered, and so to come from Arabia to other lands. But ledanon, which the Arabians call ladanon, is produced yet more strangely than this, for it is the most fragrant thing produced in the most melodious, for it is found in he-goats' beards, forming in them like gum among timber. This is used in the manufacture of many perfumes. There is nothing that Arabians burn so often as incense. Enough of marvels, and yet the land of Arabia gives off a scent as sweet as if divine. They have besides two marvellous kinds of sheep found nowhere else. One of these has tails no less than nine feet long. Were the sheep to trail these after them, they would suffer by the chafing of the tails on the ground. But every shepherd there knows enough of carpentry to make little carts which they fix under the tails, binding the tail of each sheep on its own cart. The other kind of sheep has a tail a full three feet broad. Where south inclines westwards, the part of the world stretching farthest towards the sunset is Ethiopia. This produces gold in abundance, and huge elephants, and all sorts of wild trees, and ebony, and the tallest and handsomest and longest-lived people. These, then, are the most distant lands in Asia and Libya. But concerning those in Europe that are the farthest away towards evening, I cannot speak with assurance, for I do not believe that there is a river called by foreigners, Eridanus, issuing into the northern sea, where our amber is said to come from, nor do I have any knowledge of tin islands where our tin is brought from. The very name Eridanus betrays itself as not a foreign but a Greek name, invented by some poet nor for all my diligence have I been able to learn from one who has seen it that there is a sea beyond Europe. All we know is that our tin and amber come from the most distant parts. But in the north of Europe there is by far the most gold. In this matter again I cannot say with assurance how the gold is produced, but it is said that one-eyed men called Arimaspians steal it from griffins. But I do not believe this, that they are one-eyed men who have a nature otherwise the same as other men. The most outlying lands, though, as they enclose and wholly surround all the rest of the world, are likely to have those things which we think the finest and the rarest. There is a plain in Asia shut in on all sides by mountains, through which there are five passes. This plain was once the Chorasmians being at the boundaries of the Chorasmians, the Hyrcanians, Parthians, Sarangians, and Thamanei. But since the Persians have held power, it has been the kings. Now from the encircling mountains flows a great river whose name is the Aces. Its stream divides into five channels and formerly watered the lands of the above-mentioned peoples, going to each through a different pass. But since the beginning of the Persian rule, the king has blocked the mountain passes, and closed each passage with a gate. With the water barred from outlet, the plain within the mountains becomes a lake, seeing that the river pours into it and finds no way out. Those, therefore, who before were accustomed to use the water, endure great hardship in not being able to use it, for, during the winter, 
God reigns for them just as for the rest of mankind, but in the summer they are in need of the water for their sown millet and sesame. So, whenever no water is given to them, they come into Persia with their women and cry and howl before the door of the king's palace, until the king commands that the river gate should be opened for those whose need is greatest. Then, when this land has drunk its fill of water, that gate is shut, and the king has another opened for those of the rest who most require it. I know by hearsay that he gets a lot of money over and above the tribute for opening the gates. So much for these matters. Of the seven men who revolted against Amagus, one in Taphrenes got his death through his own violence immediately after the rebellion. He wanted to enter the palace and speak with the king, and in fact the law was that the rebels against the Magus would come into the king's presence unannounced if the king were not having intercourse with one of his wives. In Taphrenes, as one of the seven, claimed his right to enter unannounced, but the gatekeeper and the messenger forbade him, telling him that the king was having intercourse with one of his wives. In Taphrenes thought that they were lying, drawing his scimitar he cut off their noses and ears, then strung these on his horse's bridle, and hung it around the men's necks, and so let them go. They showed themselves to the king, and told him why they had been treated so. Darius, fearing that the six had done this by common consent, sent for each and asked his opinion, whether they approved what had been done, and being assured that they had no part in it, he seized in Taphrenes with his sons and all his household, for he strongly suspected that the man was plotting a rebellion with his kinsmen, and imprisoned them with the intention of putting them to death. Then in Taphrenes' wife began coming to the palace gates, weeping and lamenting, and by continuing to do this same thing she persuaded Darius to pity her, and he sent a messenger to tell her. Woman! King Darius will allow one of your imprisoned relatives to survive, whomever you prefer of them all. After considering, she answered, If indeed the king gives me the life of one, I choose from them all my brother. Darius was astonished when he heard her answer, and sent someone who asked her, Woman, the king asks you with what in mind you abandon your husband and your children, and choose to save the life of your brother who is less close to you than your children, and less dear than your husband. O king, she answered, I may have another husband, if a god is willing, and other children, if I lose these, but since my father and mother are no longer living, there is no way that I can have another brother. I said what I did with that in mind. Darius thought that the woman answered well, and for her sake he released the one for whom she had asked, and the eldest of her sons as well. He put to death all the rest, thus immediately perished one of the seven. While Cambuses was still ill, the following events occurred. The governor of Sardis, appointed by Cyrus, was Orotes, a Persian. This man had an impious desire, for although he had not been injured or spoken badly of by Polycrates of Samos, and had in fact never even seen him before, he desired to seize and kill him, for the following reason, most people say, as Orotes and another Persian whose name was Mitrobates, governor of the province at Dasaleum, sat at the king's doors, they fell from talking to quarrelling, and as they compared their achievements, Mitrobates said to Orotes, You are not to be reckoned a man. The island of Samos lies close to your province, yet you have not added it to the king's dominion, an island so easy to conquer that some native of it revolted against his rulers with fifteen hoplites and is now lord of it. 
Some say that Herodes, angered by this reproach, did not so much desire to punish the source of it as to destroy Polycrates utterly, the occasion of the reproach. A few people, however, say that when Herodes sent a herald to Samos with some request, it is not said what this was, the herald found Polycrates lying in the men's apartments in the company of Anacreon of Teos, and, whether on purpose to show contempt for Herodes, or by mere chance, when Herodes' herald entered and addressed him, Polycrates, then lying with his face to the wall, never turned or answered him. These are the two reasons alleged for Polycrates' death. Believe whichever you like. But the consequence was that Orotes, then at Magnesia, which is above the river Myander, sent Mercus, son of Gyges, a Lydian, with a message to Samos, having learned Polycrates' intention. For Polycrates was the first of the Greeks whom we know to aim at the mastery of the sea, leaving out of account Minos of Knossos and any others who before him may have ruled the sea, of what may be called the human race. Polycrates was the first, and he had great hope of ruling Ionia and the islands. Learning then that he had this intention, Orotes sent him this message. Orotes addresses Polycrates as follows. I find that you aim at great things, but that you have not sufficient money for your purpose. Do then as I direct, and you will succeed yourself and will save me. King Cambuses aims at my death. Of this I have clear intelligence. Now, if you will transport me and my money, you may take some yourself and let me keep the rest. Thus you shall have wealth enough to rule all Hellas. If you mistrust what I tell you about the money, send someone who is most trusted by you, and I will prove it to him. Hearing this, Polycrates was pleased and willing, and since he had a great desire for money, he first sent one of his townsmen, Myandrius, son of Myandrius, to have a look. This man was his scribe. It was he who not long afterwards dedicated in the Horaeum all the splendid furnishings of the men's apartment in Polycrates' house. When Orotes heard that an inspection was imminent, he filled eight chests with stones, leaving only a very shallow space at the top. Then he laid gold on top of the stones, locked the chests, and kept them ready. Myandrius came and saw, and brought word back to his master. Polycrates then prepared to visit Orotes, despite the strong dissuasion of his diviners and friends, and a vision seen by his daughter in a dream. She dreamt that she saw her father in the air overhead being washed by Zeus and anointed by Helios. After this vision she used all means to persuade him not to go on this journey to Orotes. Even as he went to his fifty-year-old ship, she prophesied evil for him. When Polycrates threatened her that if he came back safe, she would long remain unmarried, she answered with a prayer that his threat might be fulfilled, for she would rather, she said, long remain unmarried than lose her father. But Polycrates would listen to no advice. He sailed to meet Orotes, with a great retinue of followers, among whom was Demosides, son of Caliphon, a man of Croton and the most skilful physician of his time. But no sooner had Polycrates come to Magnesia than he was horribly murdered in a way unworthy of him and of his aims. For except for the sovereigns of Syracuse, no sovereign of Greek race is fit to be compared with Polycrates for magnificence. Having killed him in some way not fit to be told, Orotes then crucified him. As for those who had accompanied him, he let the Samians go, telling them to thank him that they were free. Those who were not Samians or servants of Polycrates' followers, he kept for slaves. And Polycrates, hanging in the air, 
fulfilled his daughter's vision in every detail, for he was washed by Zeus when it rained, and he was anointed by Helios as he exuded sweat from his body. End of Book 3, Part 6